I think she kind of embodies aspects of ourselves we don't always feel comfortable admitting to. I think that's why it, it kind of like draws people to it. It's kind of like a way to like validate our own feelings and emotions and reactions to certain things. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to Watched It, the show about shows. I'm your host, Caitlin Berger. I'm a professional flutist who would usually rather be watching TV. I know I'm not an expert on TV. I'm not in the industry. I usually forget everything I watch within one business week, but I believe you don't have to be an expert if you want to have a good old chat with friends and family about our favorite TV shows, the characters that resonate with us, and of course, the scenes that make us flip out. Today on the pod, we'll be discussing Fleabag. This is your spoiler warning because there are only two very short seasons of this show and we will probably discuss every last detail. So please do yourself an enormous favor and watch this show before continuing. It'll take you like an afternoon. But also, maybe listening to our fangirly conversation will be just the inspiration you need to watch it later. I don't know. Do what you please, as always. Fleetbag, if you didn't know, was a British dramedy series streaming on Amazon. It premiered in 2016 and wrapped up in 2019. The show centers around a young woman, the titular Fleabag, navigating life after the death of her best friend, Boo. This cast is absolutely phenomenal, comprising of Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Sean Clifford, Andrew Scott, Olivia Coleman, Bill Patterson, Brett Gelman, and many, many more incredible people. I just want to offer a quick trigger and content warning for discussions of suicide, domestic abuse, mental health issues, and miscarriage. If you enjoy today's show, please go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and please share our podcast with your friends and family so that we can all talk about TV together. Thank you so much for listening and for supporting us. Joining me to discuss Fleabag is producer Jackie and our guest Sophie. Hello, both of you. Hi. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about Fleabag because it's one of my favorite shows. Woohoo! Yes, I'm excited as well. And how do we all know each other? Because we do all know each other. Okay, so Caitlin and I have known each other since high school and then in undergrad because Caitlin and I went to the same university. Caitlin became friends with Jackie. I kind of knew Jackie, but not very well. And then I moved to Vancouver and then Jackie moved to Vancouver a few months after me and we met up and that's how Jackie and I became good friends. And now just the three of us are really good friends. What a love story. I love it. And Sophie, you've already been on the pod. So people listening, you can go check out the Young Royals episode that Sophie was on. I think that's episode five, if I'm not mistaken. Sorry, I can't remember. But that was an amazing episode. One of our most listened to. So make sure to do yourself a favor and listen to that. But before we dive into Fleabag, I would love to know what content you both have been consuming. So that can be anything from TV shows, of course, to movies, books, podcasts, music. Anything you want to shout out? I just feel like I really haven't been consuming that much lately, sadly, except for some things I might not want to talk about until the strike's over. So hopefully that happens soon and I'll save mine for later. Nice. (laughs) A reserved answer today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I haven't been really watching anything lately, but I've been reading a lot. So I tend to read like three books at a time in all different formats. So in terms of physical book, I am reading a Star Wars book called 
Inquisitor Rise of the Red Blade, and it's really good and really makes me hate the Jedi. <laughs> Sophie, you should have a Star Wars podcast. I should, right? Yes. You're like such an expert. Ask my sister to do it with you and she would like die in excitement. <laughs> yeah. Is that Kennedy? Yeah. yeah, Kennedy. Yeah, both friends of the pod. That would be amazing. Yeah, that would be cool. Okay, things to think about. In terms of ebook, I am reading a fantasy romance called Care by Aaron Hawk. And then audiobook, I am listening to My Husband by Maud Ventura, which is like about this woman who's just like has a very unhealthy attachment to her husband and the amount of times she says my husband like I don't even know his name I think she just calls him my husband <laughs> very on brand for our episode today <laughs> yeah that is true every time she's like, my husband is my husband that I'm like okay I get it your husband uh, <laughs> I don't have any words <laughs> but still it's a really great book it's a French book translated into English too lovely I have been binge watching the golden girls and I've think I might finish it this weekend, but I'm very scared because then I don't know what I'm going to do with my life <laughs> because that's all I do is watch it lately. So I'm a bit obsessed with that. I made some videos on Instagram talking about how I read everything in Blanche Devereaux's voice now. So anyone listening who knows the Golden Girls will know how hilarious that is because I've been trying to read uh, Jane Austen's Emma, but I have like a funny Southern accent going on in my head. I mean, it's really funny to try and read you know, Jane Austen in a Southern accent, but like, I just can't do it. So I guess once I've done the Golden Girls, I can go back to reading Emma. <laughs> I forgot to mention what I've been listening to because uh, Jackie and I were talking about Gracie Abrams this morning. Uh, we both seem to really like her, but also I discovered Caroline Polachek recently and I really like her song because it has a funny title. Also sounds really good, but it's called So Hot You're Hurting My Feelings. That also sounds on brand. Yeah, it's true. You've really prepped for this episode. <laughs> Yes, I am. I'm very proud. <laughs> I have the scriptures open in front of me. For those that don't know, there is a script book you can buy of Fleabag, which I have. It's on my to-get list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have notes. I have notes on the episodes I've watched. Rewind. Mm, yes. I have too many notes. But let's dive into it. So what made you decide to watch Fleabag? And also, did you watch each season as they were released? Or did you watch it all at a later time? I think... I watched it right before season two came out and it was just like a lot of people were talking about the excitement and I was like, what is this? I had no idea what it was. No clue. So I just watched it and I was like, wow, this is like a healing experience to watch this show. Like there's something about it that was so magical to me and it was just the perfect time in my life to watch it, I felt like. And then season two was even better. So yeah, excellent. I think I watched it because Caitlin actually recommended it to me. I love to hear that. Yes. You recommended Crashing First that also stars Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Go me. <laughs> I think you said, oh, you might like Bag too if you like that. Yeah, but I'd also seen some clips of Bag on social media. Like I saw some like clips with like Hot Priest, uh, which also made me more interested. I was like, who's the Hot Priest? <laughs> Basically, I watched it when both seasons were already out. So I watched it all at once. Yeah, so that was the same experience for me. Uh, according to the app TV Time, I logged Fleabag in April of 2021, which is a lot later than I thought I watched it, but I uh, gotta trust the log. And yeah, I just watched season one and two together. I don't think I knew anyone at that point who had seen it or I hadn't talked to anyone about it, but I'd heard the general buzz and it just looked interesting. But also, what were both of your expectations going into it and were they actually met? No expectations. 
very much met. <laughs> <laughs> that's, oh, that's, I think that's the best combination. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I had any expectations either. But yeah, like Jackie, they were all met whatever expectations I had subconsciously. I expected it just to be like a funny British show, just like many others that have a similar vibe. And also funny enough, the whole breaking the fourth wall thing, uh, right away what it made me think of was this show Miranda that like to this day, I feel like no one knows enough about. It's a British comedy show that started airing in 2009. And um, it's not so much a dramedy. It's like basically a pure comedy. It's a sitcom essentially. But in that show, the main character, Miranda, who's the actress Miranda Hart, she also breaks the fourth wall in a very similar way. And so when I started watching Fleabag, I was like, oh, is it going to be like this? And then I realized there's a lot more drama to it, <laughs> even though there's still like a lot of comedy. It's definitely a dramedy. And I also wasn't expecting the depth and the like existential aspects to it like that you experience a lot in season two. But also in season one, I was just like, oh, oh, OK, I see what you're doing. <laughs> So, okay, the show itself. I honestly like rewatching it, you know, for the third time, writing down notes. I realized I actually have more questions for you guys today than answers or like things to talk about. Like, I just, I don't think any other show that we've talked about on the podcast so far brought up so many questions for me. Like, usually it's just, oh, this is what I thought of this scene, that character. And here it's just like, why did that happen? What does this mean? Like, um, it's a lot of that, at least for me. I think it's one of the most analyzable shows. There is where basically every single scene, everything in the scene, everything you can see on screen has a purpose, has a meaning to it. And it's usually deeper than face value. And you can't actually say that about a lot of shows, even dramas. And before we continue, I also just want to shout out a TikTok creator who has been popping up on my For You page. Their handle is at Lucky Lefty. And they make uh, videos, uh, sort of like video essays almost, analyzing different parts of Fleabag. And I tried not to watch too many of them, at least not like the whole way through, because I wanted to try at least to have my own <laughs> like thought processes but after our episode I'm definitely going to go and like watch everything like full length to see what she thinks of all these things because sometimes I feel a bit like oh I don't know like how to analyze things sometimes but I tried I tried my best so my first question out of like 20 that I have <laughs> for you both why do you think that some characters have names and some don't so to preface of course we know Fleabag is the main character and so that's already interesting to analyze that word but also like the priest the godmother and also some of the guys she dates in the first season don't have names and it's very much on purpose so what is the reason that you guys can come up with for that okay i kind of cheated i looked up the definition of what a flea bag is oh, online tell me and yes it says a dirty or shabby person or animal love it yeah which you know what i'm pretty sure that's probably how the character fleabag like sees herself so, like, that makes sense to me. I think I could, like, see the appeal of using that name for this character. Totally. Yeah, season one especially, I would say. I wonder if the name thing for other people is a little bit, like, more the people that have a little bit more of a long-term presence in her life. Because even with, like, her sexual partners or, like, the priest, uh, arsehole guy <laughs> like best rodent look i know i always say like i'm not in this industry whatever i'm not an actor but imagine whatever resume whatever the fuck they like tell people their like work experience being like yeah so i was a uh, bus rodent 
Yeah. <laughs> like that's... But it's like so iconic. <laughs> I know. It is very iconic. I actually really you like, like that You know actor. exactly who that is. Yeah. So yeah, I wonder if the long-term people get names and the other ones, it's kind of like, this is their like role to me for a second. This is who they are. And they're going to like fit this purpose in my life for a minute and then they're gone kind of thing. I don't know. But then we have someone like Claire who who are very significant in her life. And I mean, the dad is debatable because I think it makes sense that they just call him dad, you know, but at the same time, the godmother could use his name and she never does. I don't think. <laughs> Actually, yeah, there's a scene at the very end of the show where she forgets his name because she's like, I always call you darling or whatever, like some term of endearment. <laughs> she realizes she can't remember his name. But I, in a way, I feel like they probably did that on purpose as like, LOL, we don't use names for everyone, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I genuinely don't have a, an answer for sure in terms of like which ones get names, which don't. But obviously for Fleabag, like you were saying, Sophie, that she's telling us it's a, what she thinks of herself. But for the priest, you know, what what reason would there be? So like we regularly say it on this podcast, kind of, okay, not really, but uh, call in. <laughs> I kind of think maybe with the priest, it's someone she wants to get close to, but like he's kind of keeping her at arm's length because like of his priesthood so maybe that's why like he doesn't really have a name for her just hot priest i love that yeah well it's funny because like everyone calls him hot priest but then when i went to imdb to like look at everyone's character names i realized like no his name is just the priest (laughs) like we just gave him that moniker (laughs) and it it should be hot priest but (laughs) Mm -mm. missed opportunity (laughs) oh absolutely (laughs) my second question is more general so which of Fleabag's relationships was the most engaging or memorable to you. So you can talk about the characters themselves, but what I realized when I was drafting the notes is that I think every single scene in the show, it contains Fleabag. I don't think there's a single scene without her. So in terms of characters, I thought it'd be more interesting to talk about them in relation to her. I mean, definitely the priest. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let's dive in. Yeah. I mean, that has to be the most iconic I mean, I don't know if there's a show, honestly, where I wanted two people to get together more <laughs> in a weird way. Absolutely. I like know him from like Sherlock days. And it's interesting to me because on Sherlock, Andrew Scott's character, Moriarty, I think it was, it's been forever. And uh, I feel like watching him in this was like such a pleasant surprise. Like he was just like such a lovely, playful person. I love how he didn't take life too seriously, but he still was like, wanting to be like a supportive person in her life. Whereas a lot of people don't even like, I think out of the show, we didn't really get to see like Boo in the present, but I think she was maybe like supportive, obviously, but Fleabag never really had anybody who was there to like actually listen to her and like support her in that way. So it was really endearing to see that. And I just think his character, like he delivers so many lines so well, like one of them is like at the fair, like, I don't know how to talk to babies. I just loved his performance and his character. The fact that he could like notice her breaking out of fourth wall. I thought that was one of the most interesting aspects of the show. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I, I echo all of that. What I'm curious about though, and we'll get into the fourth wall of it all super soon, but what do you think he actually like saw? Like if you were in the room with them because when she breaks the fourth wall she looks at the camera and like when he there's a scene in the cafe and he looks at the camera at one point because he's trying to figure out what she's doing do you think her head was actually moving like does he see her move her head you know what I mean or like like what do you think he's actually like seeing happen I think he was seeing like almost like she was just like talking to herself maybe she gets so lost in her head she's just like yeah like staring off in the space maybe like talking to herself and he's just kind of like looking where she's looking like who are you talking to or like Mm -hmm. 
but yeah, it is interesting that like he's the only one that seems to notice, and she has like so many other people like close to her. Like maybe they're used to it. Like I don't know. I think it's one of those like mysteries that like I don't know if it'll ever be solved, but it's a really cool mystery. Yeah, that's a really good uh, description of it. The main thing that comes to mind, I can't find a better way of saying this, is that it's sort of what you were saying, Jackie. Like he's the only one who sees her, like literally, figuratively, symbolically, tangibly, like in every single way, he knows who she is and from the get-go accepts her. They're on the same wavelength. I, I I sort of see them as like kindred spirits, right? Like I, I got that from Anne of Green Gables really stuck with me <laughs> from my childhood. But like, I love that term where it's like someone that you can literally be yourself with. And and often I don't love cliches like the when people are like, be yourself. I'm like, I literally don't know what you mean. But in this case, it's like you can be the most authentic person that you want to be, that you think you are. And someone can recognize that because if you contrast it with the men that she dated or slept with in the first season, they are all so oblivious, but not just to her fourth wall break. Cause obviously like you said, Sophie, basically it's only the priest that sees that, but they're either just there for sex. They don't know who this woman is. They don't care who she is. They completely just are there for their own like self gratification or they think they're amazing guys and they think they found a cool woman, but like they don't know her. Right. And so then you get this character, the priest who does. And anyways, just ends up so kind of tragic, but I just had a revelation. God, God, <laughs> God. <laughs> okay. So my theory now actually is maybe, so the priest, yeah, maybe he's the only one that actually sees her. Cause like I just mentioned earlier about like, well, you know, her sister doesn't notice, but maybe it's because, like, everybody around her, including her sister, like, they see her in a different way than who she actually is. Like, I'm sure the sister kind of sees her as, like, you know, this, like, broken person grieving loss of, like, her best friend and, like, the fact that her cafe isn't doing so well, at least, like, in the first season. And, like, her dad, like, kind of sees her as a bit of, like, a troublemaker. Like, everybody kind of sees her as, like, different things. But I guess maybe it's just the priest that actually sees her for who she, like, really is. So maybe that's why. He's the only one that recognizes when she like breaks the fourth wall. And almost like he can accept her and the other people can't. Yeah, exactly. She can still kind of like act like herself. And that might include some elements as the way other people view her. But they like treat her a different way because of it or judge her because of it. But he can just like fully accept it. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. I really think like the priest would have been like, like a perfect like match for her, I guess. If, you know, he wasn't a priest. I don't know. He was like a different kind of religious priest. I don't know much about religion. Oh, like a pastor or something. Can't pastors have relationships? I feel like I know so little about Christianity. Like I don't know anything either of the Mormons. Oh, that's true. I don't think any of us, none of us were brought up like Catholic actually, right? I have like a super Catholic cousin who might know but <laughs> I can imagine the text. So um, which members of the Catholic church can have sex? <laughs> <laughs> also, because we mentioned like God before too. I was just reading in the script, the conversation she has with like the counselor. And she's like, I want to fuck a priest. And she's like, are you sure? Like you really want to fuck the priest or do you want to fuck God? <laughs> and like that just made me laugh because her response is like, can you fuck God? And the concert's like, oh, yes. <laughs> That's actually one of my favorite lines in the whole show. Like, yeah. It's just so well yeah. I know. It's me. iconic. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> iconic. What I do find interesting, though, about the whole fourth wall break with the priest is that there are a couple times where she gives a look to the camera that suggests that she actually doesn't want them to be looking. And that happens really quickly, I think, at the end of ooh, episode three or at the end of the the fair or whatever. 
he gives her the the Bible and her fourth wall break there. She looks at the camera sort of with like a frown, like don't look at me sort of thing. And then of course, when they actually do have sex at the end of episode five, she physically lowers the camera so that you can't see them. And if we stretch it, the very last scene is her sort of saying goodbye to the camera as well. But yeah, I thought that was kind of cool because it's like she knows that this relationship is sort of sacred. LOL, one of my Christian words that I know. Uh, And uh, so I think whatever the fourth wall is about, she knows that she doesn't really actually want people prying that much into their relationship for like these little moments that she seems to want to keep to herself. What do you think it represents? What is your belief about the fourth wall break? Other than it being funny, obviously. (laughs) I've seen like jokes referring to it online of like, oh, like thinking your life is like a movie or something like that. So it's like, maybe she's just like, that's like her imaginary like audience in her head that she's like conspiring with. Yeah, because I was going to ask both of you, like, do you do that? Because I feel like I sometimes do that. And like, this was way before watching the show, like very often, especially if I'm watching a TikTok and like, I'm just in my room and I just like, look off to the side like you know like basically doing that so I'm curious if you guys do that too yeah I think to an extent I do it but I think maybe when I was younger I think I did it more like in high school probably (laughs) but now I feel like if I'm like kind of like in a similar scenario where like I see something funny online and I kind of like look to the side and laugh I kind of just actually imagine like laughing with like a friend or someone I know (laughs) yeah oh I see yeah that makes sense I don't know that I do that so much, like moving my head or anything, but I do feel like I'm very much like spaced out in my mind a lot of the times, like doing social commentary on things or like as if it's like a narration of a story or something. Yeah, yeah. But so like that's definitely very relatable. But I think my interpretation of it is quite similar. Like it feels like it's almost like an outlet for her to like process her life, I feel like in a way. So it's like, this is happening right now. And in my head, I'm thinking this, but also like, I don't have anybody to tell it to kind of thing. So I'm just going to like, almost create that space as if there were kind of because that's something that I actually need maybe is to have someone to tell things to. I don't know. It also feels like with her like self-deprecating humor and like comments, like it seems like that is very much like a coping mechanism where uh, she needed to do that to be validated by others for, for certain reasons. So it also feels like maybe she like almost feels obligated to say some of these things through, through like her past experiences. And when no one's there, maybe she still says it, even though they're not there. Any, I don't know. So that could be another uh, interpretation, but very interesting that she does that. <laughs> Yeah, lots of options for sure. Something I saw online probably like last year or a while ago was that it could be Boo, right? She could be imagining talking to Boo and, you know, not being able to do that anymore. She's sort of reverting. I think in the same wavelength, it's part of perhaps a dissociation, right? So just very simply, like maybe she's not, like we said, physically moving her head or whatever, but has this internal monologue, internal dissociation going on i i agree with what you say jackie i think it's definitely a way to cope with the world and also like with the people that don't treat her properly which is basically actually more her family than than even the guy she goes out with and i think it's it is like a way for her to um maybe confess a little bit or to be authentic or to be like just more real but she's not able to. So yeah, just I think there's a lot of ways to read it. But I mean, there's a scene in the therapist's office, like when the therapist basically is like, do you even have any friends or like whatever? And she, at some point in that scene, she looks to the camera and implies that we who are watching her are her friends. But I don't actually think that 
throughout the whole show that the fourth wall is about the actual audience watching the TV show. I think that was just maybe like a one-off, like, thanks for watching guys, you know? (laughs) And I think the rest of the show, I don't think it's so much about us as the viewer. I think it's like, yeah, it could be boo. It could be just the dissociation of it all. (laughs) So coming back to characters, I'd love to talk a little bit about Fleabag and Claire, her sister. So (laughs) I think it's a very fascinating relationship. I know exactly who me and my sister are in this scenario, (laughs) but what do you make of Claire? Uh, How do you view her in relation to Fleabag as well? I mean, I really like Claire and I kind of like their relationship too, even though it's very fraught. I don't have a sister, so I don't know what it's like to have a sister and like fight with them and whatnot. But yeah, I thought their relationship was like really interesting because like on the one hand, like they're like, they argue a lot and they, they clearly have like different mentalities about stuff in life, different like priorities and goals. I love like in the beginning of the first episode of the first season, uh, when they go that feminist talk, Fleabag like whispers to her sister like we're bad feminists <laughs> because like they raise their hands like when the lady asks like oh would you give up like I don't even know what it was would you give up five years of your life or something if you had a perfect body or something? yeah something like that her and her sister are the only ones that like raise their hands <laughs> which was kind of weird because I thought that was the point of why the speaker was asking the question was that she thought like the whole audience would raise their hands so I thought that was a bit strange but it was funny <laughs> people were lying <laughs> I think it's the fourth episode in the first season when they're going to like that retreat that their dad like paid for them to go to what a weird thing to do yeah I know it's so weird but I think that's actually one of my favorite episodes because there's a part in the car, like, the, they have to, like, pull over because the sister's, like, crying. Mm-hmm. And Fleabag's, I guess, trying to console her. But then she looks at the camera and she's, like, fucking psycho. And, like, that just really made me laugh when she says <laughs> it. Like, she clearly means it, like, as a joke. But, like, it's just funny because I'm, like, that's just, like, so much how siblings, like, talk to each other. Like, my brother and I are always, like, swearing at each other. <laughs> or, like, you asshole or whatever. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't say it to her sister's face, I guess, because her sister's having a vulnerable moment. But yeah. just I love how she turns to us. like, fucking psycho. And even at the end of the first season when her sister and her, like, have that falling out because of, like, Martin, <laughs> we all hate him. Yeah. Obviously, it's a betrayal for, like, Fleabag. But I still think, like, I could see her sister's perspective too, in in a way. And yeah, I think the reason her sister like tells her basically at the end of the first season that she like doesn't trust her because of what she had done to Boo. Like I got the sense that the sister didn't actually even really believe Martin. I think she's just, it's coming from a place of like insecurity because she's too afraid to leave her husband and move to Finland and like pursue her own dreams. So it was just like an easier excuse to like believe her husband and blame like Fleabag for everything that's gone wrong. (laughs) Yeah, super analyzable once again. (laughs) I think it's interesting. There's so, so many facets to Claire, one of which is that she feels responsible for Fleabag, right? Because of Boo's death and the grief that Fleabag is going through. And originally she didn't want to take the Finland job. There's that whole scene at the lunch or whatever, where she's like, you can't just fuck off the Finland or whatever and leave your broken sister type of thing. But I think she's also a bit jealous of her in season two. At some point, Claire tells her like, I feel like a failure basically compared to, to you, or at least like you make me feel like a failure. And I think this applies to basically all of Fleabag's family, but Claire is mad at Fleabag for seeing her. Right. So how I mentioned that the priest really sees Fleabag, I think Fleabag really can see Claire. She knows who Claire is. And Claire, 
you know, is portrayed as this very repressed person and repressed people (laughs) don't like thinking about themselves or their emotions or what they want and all this sort of thing. And Fleabag to me is like a truth teller sort of inadvertently. She just shows up in front of her family and they see themselves for who they really are and they don't like what they see. And Fleabag doesn't even do it on purpose. Like a lot of times with Claire, like Claire finishes Fleabag sentences or she assumes what Fleabag is about to say to her. And Fleabag's like, I didn't say that. Or like, what are you talking about? But it's just Claire knowing the truth deep down. And so she's just mad at Fleabag, to, you know, to basically, because she's holding up a mirror to her. That's that's sort of my interpretation of why she gets so angry with her. I think there's a lot of relationships like that. And it's a very fascinating aspect to relationships that I don't think gets portrayed or talked about much, that whole sort of mirror thing. I think it's the first episode after that feminist lecture when she's like going in for a hug and like like self-defenses. Yeah. (laughs) Like at the beginning of the show where we start to see their lives, they definitely don't have like a super strong relationship. They like, it's weird to hug each other and they just like, don't seem to like have spent much time together and have kind of like assumptions of who each other are. And obviously that unfolds a bit as the series continued, but I feel like, one of the things that's really special about their relationship is they both have like such a shared history and they're both intrinsically connected to their mother who has passed away. It's pretty recent too, I I feel like. And they're both grieving still, but their father has essentially like moved on in like a pretty insensitive way, I think. And I think that's really hurtful and they only really have each other to be able to like feel connected in that way. And I think that's one of the main things that bonds them is like their dislike of the godmother, future stepmother, the goddess Olivia Coleman. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But it is interesting to see how like that's one of the main things that brings them together. And then through like these little tiny fights and stuff like that, they start to like like she almost like softens Claire's character a bit. For example, the part when they're at the silent retreat, Fleabag says something like, oh, it's very simple. We pay them money to clean their house. Is that the part that Claire starts laughing super hard and then I think yeah. they get in trouble? <laughs> yeah. So I feel like little things like that, like slowly they start to uh, feel more comfortable around each other. And Claire's character is like obviously like a pretty like, she like projects herself as like a very competent, successful woman who like knows what she's doing and stuff, but really she is quite lost. And I feel like she might have some professional accolades or whatever, but in her personal life, like she doesn't really know what she's doing and she feels kind of trapped. And, uh, by having like the support of Fleabag, I feel like it like helps validate some of her like deepest, things that she's thinking that she would never act on. Like, for example, like had the idea of leaving Martin, the nastiest man out there. He's gross because he's such a realistic man because yeah, he's not physically abusive. He's, I don't even necessarily think he's verbally abusive to Claire. He's just like a shit guy. (laughs) And I think that's like the truth for so many, especially hetero people's relationships in the real world is like, you're just dating a guy who's like not a good dude. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting relationship for sure. I will have to say that on Amazon Prime, you know how like on streaming services, you can pick your picture nowadays. Mine has been for like the past, since they started doing that, it's been like 
Claire with her haircut like that. Oh, that's funny. My my little icon is Fleabag. <laughs> oh, that's funny because I feel like I identify a lot more with Fleabag. But then mm. um, when it comes to like my relationship with my twin, pretty much, I'm definitely the Claire in that situation. That's so she's so like funny. ultra Fleabag. I have a change by now. Mine's just a cat. <laughs> Make it a fox and then we're the perfect trio. <laughs> True. But I also agree with what you were saying before, Sophie, that they obviously very much love each other. I love how at the end of the show, season two, episode six, Claire says that the only person I'd run through an airport for is you. And I thought that was really adorable. And I feel like they sort of go on a journey, but it's, again, like a very realistic one. It's not like this huge arc of like, everyone has changed by the end. It's just like normal day to day, like arcs that are happening and little shifts in people's personalities. Like it's still not big shifts. Um, Just briefly, if we talk about Claire and Claire with a K, (laughs) he's also someone that sees Claire with a C for who she is. Mm -hmm. It's not that Claire is now some like new person by the end of the show necessarily, but she's just sort of maybe opened up, blossomed, accepted parts of herself and that sort of thing. So I think it's another aspect that makes this show so, so, so engaging is that almost nothing in it is a cliche. Almost nothing is stereotypically shown to us. So I think that's partially why it was so successful. But I I do want to keep talking about Fleabag's family. So we have the dad, he's an actor who was in Outlander and a couple other shows that I keep going like, he was in Outlander. Uh, And the stepmom, of course, or the godmother, like Jackie said, goddess Olivia Coleman. What do you make of them sort of as a family unit? What is the dysfunction to you? Like, because we know they're dysfunctional. I kind of wonder if like, maybe they were all closer when their mom was like still alive. Like that just kind of feels like very, I guess, like separated from his daughters. Like, it just makes me wonder if the mom was like kind of like the glue between like the daughters and the father. Because like, he clearly doesn't know like (laughs) how to be like, father to them in a sense like he keeps keeps sending them to like feminist lectures and stuff like that like he doesn't actually like spend a lot of time with them at least like alone but it could also be because like olivia coleman's character just keeps like butting in but there is that scene can't remember now season one or two where fleabag actually says like dad can't stand to be alone in a room with me basically and she like does it on purpose to antagonize him (laughs) that scene has always baffled me because i like I'm just like, what in what like scenario would a father be like uncomfortable to be in the same room as like his daughter in their type of like situation where like, you know, he was there for them or as they were growing up, like he wasn't like an absentee father and then just like came into the picture. Now he like raised her, you know? I think a large part of it is he mentions a couple of times throughout the show that Fleabag reminds him of the mother, right? And we don't get to see the mom at all, which is uh, another interesting question I have for you guys in a second. But um, uh, compared to, for example, Boo, who we see flashbacks of. For me, I think that's sort of what's going on here is that everyone clearly loved the mom. And the dad at one point says, you know, she just knew how to be funny. She knew how to be kind. And I don't know how to do those things instinctively. And I think they all see that in Fleabag. And for me, that's why I think they're all partially jealous of her. They're all resentful of her is like, why did you get to embody mom? Like, how come you are the chosen one who is like our mom that we loved so much, but now she's gone and you're here instead of her. And it's like all this shit that, you know, they're not able to say to each other, but the dad does basically admit that. I think in the, yeah, in the finale as well, he says that, her mom made her the way she is and it's those bits that she should cling to. And so he admits that by the end, he admits like, okay, it's a good thing that you're like your mom. But I think throughout the whole show, they were mad at her for it. And I feel like she just never knew why. And she's just like, why does my family fucking hate me basically? 
there's also that scene too where like Olivia Coleman's character like slaps her across the face and like the dad sees it but he just like kind of pretends like he didn't see it which is like so like disappointing um i think it's interesting at the end how the father says that because in the very first episode she goes to his house she says i have a horrible feeling that i'm a greedy perverted selfish apathetic cynical depraved morally bankrupt woman who can't even call herself a feminist and the dad responds that like you get that all from your mother and he doesn't take like any responsibility for like maybe his neglect of her or not meeting her needs and he doesn't even try to console her. So I think that's really interesting how he just like blames it on the mother kind of instead of like taking an active role in like, you're my child and like, I'm not really actually supportive <laughs> in the way that you need. That part kind of made me think of my own dad though. Cause the way I saw it was that like her dad responded that way because he like was uncomfortable and just responded like in a joking kind of way, which is like how my dad would have responded if I had said that. <laughs> First, he would have been like, what the fuck? And then two, he would have been like, oh, you get all that from your mother, haha. And it would just right, change right. the topic. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think like the point you made, Jackie, like makes a lot of, makes a lot of sense. And like, it sucks that like he doesn't really take a lot of like responsibility or, or accountability for like being there or taking care of like his daughters. Oh, yeah. I think it's a very realistic depiction of a family situation where, you know, a lot of time in TV and film, you see lots of yelling or physical abuse and that sort of thing. But I sort of love the passive aggressiveness that this family demonstrates, obviously the most with the godmother, because that's realistic. I mean, it's <laughs> realistic to my family. Um, <laughs> and it's realistic for a lot of people. But I think like, people who make tv shows just i don't know they like never think to show families that way for some reason i feel like it's like just constant like yelling to show that a family is dysfunctional or maybe they just don't talk to each other or something but the sort of passive aggressiveness of it all i think was like the perfect choice here one of my favorite lines <laughs> is when she's like to be fair she's not an evil stepmother she's just like <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so funny. like she doesn't you know go out of her way i guess to like go do something mean to them or something which well i don't know debatable but <laughs> there are some moments where i'm like maybe she is kind of evil <laughs> no seriously <laughs> she's very vindictive yeah well there's also you know like the the whole thing with painting like in season two where she wants to make a portrait of fleabag and claire but she gets fleabag to sit like but she only paints the back of fleabag's head and she paints claire's face and i think to me that just like it just comes back to the the mother of it all, right? Mm -hmm. She clearly hates the idea that they even had a mother before her. She hates the idea that the dad was married to someone else who obviously people loved and wants to get rid of her in so many different ways. Yeah. And so to me, that sort of solidified the like, oh, like Fleabag to the godmother is just her mother. And like, she just hates her so much because of that. It's just so sad. Like It is, yeah. Yeah. And I, I hate the part too in – at the sex exhibition um yeah where like she makes Fleabag like essentially be like a waitress oh god yeah yeah like that was so frustrating but I love it when she just like basically drops all the like glasses <laughs> I just love, also love that part where like they're looking at that wall of like dicks basically <laughs> and like uh Olivia Coleman's character is just like uh like your father is like there like it's really obvious to me I'm like, well, like, duh, no wonder it's obvious to you. But I just love how Fleabag correctly, like, picks it out. And Olivia Coleman's character just is so, like, disappointed. <laughs> Fleabag, like, she looks at the camera and she's like, yeah. <laughs> like it, That is really funny. I love how she subverts the 
the godmother, you know, as much as she can. It's so funny to me because Olivia Coleman, I feel like this is one of the only roles where she's been like a true villain. Like, I mean, even in the favorite, it was sort of fairly nuanced there. But like, this was a role where like, you want to slap the living daylights out of that woman. And it's because she portrays her so fucking well. Like, it's it's amazing to me that every single movement of her face is so perfectly done for every scene, every line delivery. And you just hate her so much. And then you go and then you stop watching the show and you go, okay, no, Olivia Coleman is a good person. We love her. <laughs> like, but oh God, what a standout performance, I feel like. Yeah. She has like a really good way of actually making her face seem very like nurturing. So when she pretends <laughs> to be that kind of person to people, I think it's pretty effective. And then it's scary how, like, for example, when uh, the priest is like, oh, I have to like not officiate the wedding anymore. And she's like so empathetic towards his quote unquote situation and is like just so kind and like soft faced. And then the second he leaves, she just is very vile words come out of her mouth in the most like, yeah, nasty attitude ever in my opinion but but it's scary because it's just like the way she portrays it is like it feels so true to some people who will be like so nice to your face and then can flip like that and it's just really scary <laughs> yes two-faced people <laughs> passive ag- aggression is so toxic because they don't let themselves be who they want to be or say what they want to say it's it, to me it's similar to people pleasing yeah people pleasing has i think better intentions in a sense but those are two sides of the same coin in my opinion at, at least how it's manifested in my personal life for myself like me being passive aggressive or being a people pleaser you're suppressing so much and at some point the only way to let that out is to be a bit of a bitch right at the end of the day like because you're always trying to put on this nice face, whatever. And I think that scene that you mentioned, Jackie, was probably, I think, the only time we hear the godmother like scream or be very actually aggressive, right? Uh, maybe also with the physical altercation with Fleabag, but certainly the only time I think we hear her like yell and everything. Yeah, that scene really shocked me. Yeah, it is shocking. So I thought that character was just perfectly written. And I don't even think she's over the top. Like, I literally think. There are real people like that. Especially in the context of getting married. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> uh, before moving on to the specific scenes that I want to pull out of you both, I do want to touch on Boo a little bit. I know we only see her in flashbacks and, uh, you know, again, in relation to Fleabag. But, I mean, the biggest question, I think, perhaps of the whole show, who knows if it can be answered. Why do you think that Fleabag slept with Boo's boyfriend? The sense I got was that she slept with Boo's boyfriend because she was drunk and feeling lonely or whatnot. But like, I don't know. I don't know why people sleep with <laughs> their best friends, partners, or like, personally, I, I don't understand it. But that's the sense I got just from like the flashbacks. Because I think in the flashback to her kind of like sleeping with him, like they're clearly like drinking. Yeah, totally plausible. I find it interesting too, though, that I think in one of those types of clips, you see that he initiates the sort of sexual activity that follows. Yeah, that's true. So then yeah. it's like so it's maybe, his fault. yeah, well, first of all, yeah, definitely his fault. But also maybe she just felt like in some way, just like, okay, I guess this is what's happening right now and just couldn't consciously decide to stop it. Maybe, I don't know. Well, I feel like there's definitely moments in like everybody's lives where maybe like not as extreme in this case or even worse maybe in some cases but where you like do something stupid and don't really think too much about it until afterwards when you see the repercussions yeah and so I definitely feel like this is an instance where 
maybe it was like kind of similar to something she's done before, but just maybe to a different person or something. So it doesn't maybe feel as off at first. And then afterwards, when you actually see, oh, the emotions involved in this, because to her, maybe she didn't feel the emotions right away. But then like seeing her friend Boost be so devastated and like emotionally torn up. And then obviously the tragedy that happened after that would really mess anybody up and make them feel horribly guilty and like shameful of, of their actions. But um, I definitely feel like it was like a little bit like a lapse of judgment, probably a little bit of alcohol, but also probably just like maybe being a little desensitized to other people's feelings. Cause she has a very flawed character. Like I think she like cares a lot about boo, but like sometimes, I mean, she could have done better, obviously. And I think like that was one of the moments where maybe she like centered herself more than other people and it was a mistake and she can't do it, but it happened kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. The other thing that it makes me think about, which also is because I've seen like videos of people analyzing this, not that I didn't see what they ended up saying, but like, do you think that maybe boo knew that Fleabag did this? We don't have an answer on that in the show necessarily but we know that boo and fleabag were so close but we don't know how long she was dating that guy like from what we see in the show it didn't seem like that deep of a relationship but we're told that she basically died because of it so maybe it was a long-term relationship but uh, something i don't know interesting to think about is maybe maybe it it some way Boo knew that Fleabag was the one who slept with him and that's why she was so upset. Um, so it could kind of show that like Boo cared more about Fleabag than the boyfriend and she was more hurt by Fleabag than the boyfriend. Like, what do you think? I mean, I personally don't see it that way, but I do in a way what you were saying before, I do think it might've just been like, she had like a very big crush on this guy and like maybe to him, the relationship meant something else. And so maybe he even felt like it was okay. Like they weren't like, necessarily committed to each other or like had a label or anything so maybe he thought it was okay even though like it's still weird with friends that can be messy but like not the same thing as like oh we've been in a committed relationship for a long time and I'm cheating but to her it might have meant something different but hadn't been like communicated that way so it was was obviously very very painful so I do feel like that could have been part of it because like it didn't seem like it was like at least we aren't shown that much history there. It kind of just seems like I have like a fascination with this person. I'm very into them. And I'm like in, in that stage where I'm obsessed and in love with them. But yeah. It's, it's pretty tragic that that happened, but it also feels like not the dying part as much. Cause obviously that's probably pretty rare, but uh, the situation itself and like the emotions evolved seem like a kind of common thing with relationships for like people just not being able to, I mean, people get cheated on all the time, but also like the communication aspect where it's like in the modern society too, like with dating and like hookups and whatever, it's like very like, there's a lot of lack of communication, I feel like for like labels and different ideas of how people see different relationships. And I feel like that's portrayed really well. Amen. <laughs> like I got the sense that Boo didn't know just because like there's a line where she says like, oh, he says like he slept with someone else. So I got like kind of the impression that she didn't know who it was and she was just like really upset from like that betrayal. So I think that might be part of like Fleabag's guilt throughout the seasons is that like, not only does she feel guilty for like betraying Boo like that, but also like, I guess Boo died without her even knowing that she was the cause of like 
some of her grief in a sense. Yeah, no closure. Yeah, yeah. I think that definitely makes sense. It's just interesting to think of what the show means if Boo did know that it was Fleabag. It's just like a, a cool other cool cool is not the right word but fascinating other lens to sort of view the at least season one through i think which of course timeline wise i think happened before boo found out about her boyfriend but there's the scene with the hamster oh no what is it that fleabag tells her that some boy got sent to prison because he put a pencil into a the hamster or whatever it was getting picked what i found interesting about the scene was that boo says that that's why there's erasers at the end or she says um what is it in British? Oh. Rubbers. Rubbers, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. so why she says that there's erasers at the end of pencils because people make mistakes. And so part of my conspiracy here is that like maybe she was like saying that to kind of be like, Fleabag, I know you made a mistake. Are you going to like tell me maybe? Obviously like timeline, this might not end up making sense at all, but it just could be like a, an interesting um, thought process. But then it's like, does Fleabag know that Boo knew that it was Fleabag? <laughs> And then it's like, who knows what sort of cycle. Yeah, I mean, I bet Fleabag in her head has thought like, oh, what if she actually did know? And like, she thought I was like a terrible friend. But then if she doesn't know, that means like I'm an even worse friend because I never even got to tell it. Like she probably goes through all these like ruminating over the what ifs because that that's kind of a thing when someone dies kind of, this is kind of grim, but like even the thought of like, oh, did they like read that like text message I sent them or even like stuff like that you know where it's like you don't know like in like their last days or whatever like what they thought or like there's like always going to be something unanswered even with living people too right like but I think that definitely like well during the grief process with something like this that ends in like such a traumatic way where you do feel like some guilt involved like there are probably a never ending amount of like thoughts that are filled with like the what ifs, what did I do? What could I have done differently? Why did I do that? What did she really like? There's just so much that I'm sure is going on in her head. Yeah. So the thing that stood out to me the most about that whole scene with the pencils and the erasers and the mistakes, which is a very profound statement. I think the thing that sticks out to me the most though from that scene is like when the bags like, yeah, like, you know, like 11 year old boy was put in juvenile prison for, yeah, I guess sticking the ends of pencils like in hamsters or whatever. But there's like, but why would they do that? And Fleabag's like, well, you know, she misinterprets the question as like, why would this kid like stick pencils like in a hamster? But Boo like is, was like, no, but like, why would they like lock him up? Like he obviously needs help. That part stood out to me the most. Like, I guess it kind of shows like how kind and empathetic Boo was as a character. Because that's like a flashback when it goes back to the present, like <laughs> Fleabag's like in bed with our soul guy. <laughs> and she's like looking at the camera and she's like, yeah, she was like a surprising person. Yeah. The word that comes to mind when I think about Boo is just pure. Like she just seemed like such a pure person. And of course, it's again through the perspective of Fleabag. So maybe that's just how Fleabag saw her. And like you said, Sophie, we don't get to know her as a person much. Maybe if she had her own spinoff or something. <laughs> but yeah, Fleabag at least shows us that boo was so kind there's a scene in season two when it's the flashback to the mom's funeral anyways afterwards when fleabag is saying um i have all this love for my mom and i don't know where to put it and boo was like give it to me i'll take it and it's just like it makes me like it's so heartbreaking because she was just a a genuinely kind person sort of like maybe what her mom was like as well who we don't see at all but i think that's also why fleabag just feels all this guilt is not only were they best friends and she did a bad thing it's like i did a bad thing to someone who was so kind and maybe that's also why she did it in the sense that like 
in our world, it's so much easier to be cruel to kind people, I feel like, or sensitive people, emotional people. And then I think that's almost a parallel to then who Fleabag is to her family. So Boo was that kind, sensitive person to Fleabag. And then Fleabag is that sensitive person to her family. And they are the ones that do sort of mean or bad things to her. So it's sort of this cycle of like, who are we going to damage next, you know? But oh God, she just seemed like the best kind of friend that everyone would want. <laughs> One of the things that the show does so well and uses as a great like tool to demonstrate this friendship and in some ways the plot as well is the guinea pig because I feel like it's like a little reminder of, of Boo, but also I feel like it's a little bit of a metaphor for Fleabag's character growth because it shows like a flashback when they first get the guinea pig and like how caring Boo was, like very nurturing to this guinea pig and like loved and cared for it so much. And then Fleabag towards the beginning of the show just like has like kind of a disconnect from this guinea pig is kind of like I'm neglecting this guinea pig but I care about Boo and like I think slowly she starts to like offer that guinea pig more compassion and more love and show like more capacity to care as well which I think is really beautiful I mean you see like it's one of the early episodes when there's a girl at the bus stop and she's just in a very vulnerable position and Fleabag like helps her and she like cares about her and she I think she's naturally a caring person but misunderstood but um in moments like that, it makes me think like maybe she wishes she could have like been there for Boo and stopped her and like made her get home safe and like things like that. So I, I think going back to the guinea pig, it really is just like a great metaphor for her evolving care for others. That is an amazing way to put it. Absolutely. So let's dive more into specific scenes and episodes that stick out to us that we absolutely need to bring up. And I feel like a lot of them are going to be in season two, but uh, probably just as many in season one, because honestly, every single episode and every single scene is worth talking about. So I don't know how much time do you guys have, but um, <laughs> what is like, what are some of those scenes that stick out for you both? Obviously, the scene where she's doing confession with the priest. <laughs> I have to say the first time I watched that, I thought like it was just her imagination when he like rips open like the curtain. Yes. Yeah. I think I thought that too. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, is this like her fantasy like coming out? But then it was like, oh my God, no, this is actually like happening. And like the music is so like perfect for that scene too. Right. Like a godlike experience. <laughs> it's so like religious. You know? <laughs> yeah. The whole season two is like religion just infiltrates all the like uh, metaphors and stuff. Yeah. One of my other favorite scenes, it's just from season one, which like I like it just because it's funny. <laughs> but uh, again, that scene where they go like on that like retreat and they, they knock on the door and they're like waiting for the person to answer. And they just in the background, they just hear like this man screaming like slut. <laughs> and then like Fleabag like calls back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just like I don't know. I just love that part so much because like there's so many responses she could have given. And like just the fact that she just responds like, yes, <laughs> like that just like it shocked me because I wasn't expecting that kind of a response and yeah I just I find that seem really hilarious <laughs> it's funny because it reminds me of the golden girls so Blanche Devereaux is like the quote-unquote slut of the group in that show she kind of also just like embraces it and like she actually doesn't really care when people refer to it as that or like characterize her as someone who sleeps around because like that's like her mission in life basically so I feel like there are very similar characters in, in funny ways <laughs> but um coming back to the confessional scene I wrote down so many, I mean, I know you have it with you, Sophie, but so many um, 
quotes and stuff. And I really love what comes before the whole Neil part, which is that she's telling him like what she wants out of life and she wants some sense of control. And I really just like that. I won't read the whole thing, but at the end when she says, I just think I want someone to tell me how to live my life, father, because so far I think I've been getting it wrong. And I thought it was a beautiful scene because it's quite a long monologue that they do in one take. And I thought it was just like beautifully portrayed by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. But like what then made the priest go like, okay, and now we have to make out like, because it was so like emotionally deep. So I'm curious, like, why do you actually think that he went that route in that scene? So, I mean, it's iconic, like, that his response is Neil. But, yeah, I'm so curious why. <laughs> like, I have so many questions. <laughs> I think from, like, the amount of romance books I've read, <laughs> I think sometimes it apparently, just from what I've read, apparently it's sometimes easier to have sex than talk. <laughs> You know what? Yeah, you nailed it. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, like, but also because, like, you know, we often think of, like, especially in that scenario where, like, oh, like, they'll just have sex and not talk. Like, that's kind of seen as, like, a negative thing. Like, oh, you know, like, they should be talking, but they're just, like, they're just kind of horny, I guess. But, like, I think, too, in some ways, though, like, and I think it, that was the case in this instance. It was more like sex as a form of, like, caring for the other person. Like, or comforting the other person. Well, that is funny because, of course, then he gets interrupted by the, was it another painting falling? There's a lot of paintings falling. And he's like, oh, shit, it's gone. Because <laughs> also because he was like, I don't know if it was that scene or later where he says something like, like, I can't let this happen. Or like, he's like mad that it happened or something. And I'm like, dude, like, you initiated it. <laughs> like, you know, she was actually one of the only moments in the show where she is not necessarily talking about sex or like wanting someone or whatever she's being very like raw and honest about like not feeling like her life's going the right way and then you're like i'm gonna make up with you so like that was on you dude <laughs> like in a professional kind of like it's easier to like dump your trauma or secrets or whatever when like when no one's like watching you or something i imagine right like i bet confessional would not be as effective if it was like face to face or whatever and so I feel like she feels like a little bit safe to be vulnerable in that moment by like just being in this dark little room. But then when he like opens up the curtain thingy and like sees her, I also feel like it was a little bit like, I see you, like I understand you and I like actually can be here for you and connect with you in this way. So I thought that was pretty powerful. Absolutely. Sort of in line with that, there's a scene in episode five where the priest goes to Fleabag's house and I thought the whole scene was very funny, but <laughs> nine times. But uh, <laughs> when he says that, and I quote, I can't have sex with you because I'll fall in love with you. And if I fall in love with you, I won't burst into flames, but my life will be fucked, end quote. So again, I'm curious, like, why do you think he, A, went to her house and B, did they actually end up having sex? Like, because again, it was sort of a moment. It, it's not like they like, you know, like in Bridgerton where they like collide and kiss in like a very physical, like rushing to each other thing. This is not what happened in both of these scenes. To be honest, actually, in both of them, it was him that was in initiating the romantic, like physical contact. So what do you think in this scene? Do you think it was the same thing? Do you like now that he even admits he it's a step further now, like he says, I'm going to fall in love with you, knowing that he initiates, you know, their sexual contact. So what do you make out of that scene? I think for him, like, he's, like, still kind of new to it. And obviously, like, he feels, like, a devotion and a connection to his calling or whatever. And so he feels, like, conflicted because, like, he's still, like, a human being. And so I feel like there's, like, a balance almost where he's, like, 
well, because I think traditionally it's like absolutely not type of thing. And so I think he like might have some kind of like restrictions in his head where naturally like he would want to and like he has a deep connection with her anyway. And it might be like worth just exploring that connection instead of just like following exactly what you're told to do. He's not like a super traditional type of person, I don't think. And so I think he's like open enough and like curious enough about her to like go for it. But I think it's another like whim of the moment type thing where it's like, like he's thought about it a lot, but like, I think he's like, screw it. I'm just going to go do it. Like, (laughs) I'm just going to go there. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of sense I got to that. Like, he just like he keeps going back and forth between I guess what he wants. The other thing I was thinking about is like which we've all sort of touched on is that they are obviously very connected. They feel connected to each other. He's very connected to her clearly. And then it was like maybe that connection is like the connection he is seeking or gets out of God. And then I was like maybe Fleabag is God. <laughs> <laughs> because that brings me to like the episode 6, the f- final episode of the show. When before the wedding of the godmother and the dad, they're like, oh, like on the side of the house and he like passionately kisses her and he's like, oh, what, what's this feeling or something like that? And she's like, is it me or is it God? And he's like, I don't know. And then that leads obviously to like the closing scene. But I was like, mm. it's like something is like, obviously everything is religion tinged in, in season two, but I was like, maybe Fleabag is God in some way. Like, I don't know. Just I, sometimes I try and be more like analytical <laughs> than I am. <laughs> but- well, definitely, I feel like it is equally like an exploration on like his, in his brain for sure as well. Like they're kind of like in two different scenarios. Like she tells him, I want someone to like tell me what to do. Like she feels directionless in that way. And he's being only told what to do. And he has like clear restrictions in his life that he chose. But it's hard to break out of that. Like it's just like mentally really hard and it literally would change his whole life. So I think it's interesting that they come together as like two opposites almost. And he literally says it at one point, I think he says like, if you really wanted for someone to tell you what to do, you'd be like wearing these or whatever. So I think it's so interesting in this moment with these two people connecting in totally different scenarios, almost opposites. And that almost allows them to connect and understand each other because they want a little bit of what each other has as well in their lives. And I think by exploring that connection, they kind of get a little bit of that out of it too, in a way. (laughs) Since he doesn't take life super seriously, he doesn't have like a super traditional even sense of religion, I feel like, like even giving her the Bible, he's like, it's more like poetry interpretation, which I think is very rare for someone to not be uh, like so dogmatic about things and kind of be a little bit more open. Like he is the aspect of religion that actually like is a little bit nice, like just an idea of someone to be like a caring person to help you maybe understand more meaning of life type of thing. I think like he is like the personified good versions of like certain traditions and but he's not traditional and him not taking life too seriously. He's able to like banter back and forth with her and accept that aspect of her as well. And I like love seeing that portrayed because I feel like in society there's like a lot of things that are like, Oh, that's not professional or like that's not acceptable. And that's like one thing that I could really relate to the show about like Fleabag sometimes like I have in my life continue to do things that are like so stupid that I think will be funny and like end up maybe even like hurting someone but I'm like like yeah Harry when she pulls the knife on him and he's in the shower and he's like 
so terrified. Like, it's a really scary thing. Like, I would definitely scream, but she's just like, can't stop laughing about it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I feel like I could have done something like this before in my life and like not realized how serious it would be. But like, it's like so traumatizing to him. It's one of the funniest scenes ever. <laughs> yeah, that was good acting. <laughs> Oh my god, he was so good in that. Scene. Yeah, really good. I also love that, like his character. He's like so emotional and sensitive and like empathetic, but to the point where he like almost co-ops other people's emotions. Like when you see at the funeral, he like totally makes it all about himself, like as if like it was his mother he was grieving, and it's just kind of like insensitive and. Yeah. uncalled for but then he wouldn't realize that because he kind of was just like I'm a good person I'm feeling which is like not a wrong thing to do but it just like goes so far and I think that's hilarious well it's like the part too where like when Fleabag runs into him in the second season and he has like a baby and he's just kind of acting as if he was the one that gave birth and it was like a super like traumatic yes. experience and whatnot yeah, totally. and it's like Okay. <laughs> you weren't the one that was carrying the baby. <laughs> that reminds me of another time when like a man is misunderstanding her humor, which is in uh, in season one, episode three. <gasps> the words my vagina is yeah. mean. <laughs> yeah. It was so <laughs> funny that he, he just did not get the whole joke in that. It was too funny. Oh, that was really well <laughs> He's done. like, where's your vagina? <laughs> She's like, where's my vagina? <laughs> Like, you have a vagina on you at all times. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that's perfection. It's another example, too, of those men, like, not seeing her as well, right? Because she's a very comedic person, not only as an actress in this show, but as a character. She's a funny character, too, in her life. And they don't see that. They don't get her. They're just projecting themselves onto her. To me, like, what comes up, which is a bit crude, is that, like, she's just, like, a dick receptacle to them, which is, like, so true of so many hetero men in this world, which is just, like, I'm gonna stick my dick into you and that's what you mean to me. And that's it. Like, you're not a real human to me. Which is just what misogyny is, obviously. But it's shown, I just, oh god, every aspect of this show is shown in such a masterful way in my opinion. Like, I've talked a lot about also just the concept of showing versus telling, which tends to be a bit of a pet peeve of mine when like TV shows and films just like tell you what's happening, tell you what the person is feeling and like whatever. And I think this show obviously does a lot more showing. And then the scenes where she's telling you something straightforwardly, it's at the perfect time, the perfect place for the perfect reasons. I think the balance there is like impeccable. And I think like some of the little details and relationships are really interesting. Her relationship with Harry, like he, he's a nice guy and all, but it just shows like little things that he does that are like, controlling her like oh like you shouldn't like masturbate anymore or yeah. like he's like offended when she gets off to Barack Obama which is like so funny to me because um, I think I've mentioned this to Sophie before but I think some I read a tweet and it was like it's so funny that Barack Obama had Fleabag on his like recommendations of TV shows for one of the years so she, he definitely Stop. watched this scene of her doing <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think he said yeah. like it was one of his favorite shows or something. Like, and Phoebe Waller Bridge yeah. was like, oh my God. It was like his yearly <laughs> recommended. Yeah. That, if I was her, I would like end my life, I think. <laughs> but I mean, like, it's so cool, but it's like really embarrassing. <laughs> I think it's so funny. <laughs> I would love to talk a bit about 
episode one of season two. I think that's a real standout to me. So the whole episode takes place at a restaurant celebrating the dad and godmother's nuptials or engagement or whatever. I think it's a phenomenal episode. I especially love at the beginning when she's getting cleaned up from her bloody nose and she turns to the camera and she says, this is a love story. And obviously like you could interpret that (laughs) here I am again with my like analytical hat, but like, of course we can take it at face value, which is like that she ends up loving the priest, but I mean, who else do you think this could be about? Do you think it really is just about that? Or I don't know. I think it could be fun to, because so much of this, the show is, has little things that I think have deeper meanings. But do you think it's really just about her and the priest or maybe other relationships? I think it's primarily about her and the priest, but it definitely could be interpreted also as like her relationship with herself, her loving memory of like both Boo and her mother. And then, like, obviously her sister, technically her dad and the godmother are getting married. I guess that's kind of its own little love story, too. But um, I think overall it's just – it's not a very traditional love story in terms of, like, her and the priest. Like, it doesn't necessarily have a goal of, like, oh, we're going to, like, date or get married or, like, this is the purpose of our relationship. It's genuinely, like, this is, like, a deep connection that randomly happened and we're just seeing where it goes type of thing, but it's not maybe going to work out, but that's okay. Cause in these moments, maybe we'll just like have the, these memories and this connection. So I feel like that to me is like the most significant part of the love story between them. So yeah, I, I definitely see it more as like her and the priest, but ultimately in the end, like her, like discovering more about herself through that relationship, maybe. When you hear the word love story, you think like it's something with a happy ending, which would be ideal, but like not all love stories are like happy or like easygoing and whatnot. Like there's always going to be like complexities. So I think that's, what's interesting about season two is that like so many, like the love stories between all the characters is very uh, complex. Yeah. And I definitely think it's interesting that she still says, if you're, if we think of it as being about the priest and her, she still categorizes it as a love story versus a tragedy, right? Perhaps she could have called it a tragedy in the sense that, or, or I don't know, whatever other word, but it's almost like a Shakespearean in that sense, right? Like um, knowing the ending and like that she still goes ahead and categorizes this as a love story, I think has a lot of meaning to that. I also just like, we need to rag on Martin for a second with the whole miscarriage. I think that's one of the most heartbreaking like dialogues or like scenes in a way, because not only he's trying to just attack Fleabag and say that you know, the reason she had a miscarriage is because the baby wanted to jump ship. But like, I think that's what so many people probably almost see miscarriages as is in like real life in some way, like just generally that it's like the mom's fault or the the um, pregnant person's fault in some sense. And it's obviously so, so much more damning when you know that it's not Fleabag that had a miscarriage. It's Claire, his wife. And oh God, like what were your reactions to that scene the first time you watched it? I want to punch him. And then Fleabag did punch him. So like, I was very happy with that. But yeah, but, oh my God. Like, but at the same time, it wasn't surprising because Martin, but like, <laughs> but like, yeah, it was so awful. I mean, so much misogyny packed into like that statement. And like, yeah, like the power it has to like hurt people is just like unbelievable. Like not just Martin, but like the godmother too. Like they were just so like, whatever about the whole like miscarriage. Whereas like, everybody else was like okay this is like serious like even the priest i think was just like what is he's probably like what the hell is happening right now like like yeah it was pretty awful pretty awful statement 
Like they can't respect Fleabag as like a whole human being. So if something bad happens to her, it's almost like downgraded to a less bad situation just because of who she is or maybe her past actions or something. So it really to me is like a bit of like dehumanizing her, even though it wasn't even like her experience. But then by proxy that like definitely harmed her sister. But I think that episode is the perfect way to start the season and to like start the relationship with the priest because although this is like technically not something that happened to her I feel like it was still like a highly emotional evening because you see how much she cares about her sister and also seeing like the dysfunction within the family like for example the uh therapy certificate thingy and it's just so shows how much they like disregard her as a person and just don't give her the same level of respect as other people. I think that the priest at the table kind of can notice that socially, like, okay, like something's different here. And I think he's the type of person who like kind of looks out for the underdog or like wants to like help people who might not be like as accepted in society. So I think it says a lot for his character to have like waited the family all leaves but he's still there and I think it is just like such a beautiful way to start their relationship like they have like some simple banter at the table and then it just like quickly becomes oh like I'm gonna actually be here even though I don't even know you because this sounds horrible and anyway I what a remarkable episode I think it's my favorite episode actually out of the whole show (laughs) it's so good yeah it is a remarkable episode you know, in line with what you're both talking about, I think it's a heartbreaking episode, despite it being highly entertaining. It has so many little moments, little attacks that you really notice, especially in the context of Fleabag not having talked to her family for a year, but in that year, having particularly her cafes going better. uh, She seems like maybe her self-worth has gotten better as well, however you want to frame that personal growth, but she seems to be doing so well. And that's like, I think she says that at some point in the episode and then you see how her family like honestly hates her like I really just think in some level it's hate at least in that episode where you know whatever underlying emotions are involved there it's like so much disdain so much even the father giving the like you were saying giving the uh, counseling voucher it's not because he thinks like oh my god everyone needs therapy and therapy is good it's not that it's like you need help right it's the like derogatory way of telling someone like I don't think you're mentally well and like whatever. But not even like you need help. Like it's almost like you need to be fixed. Yes. I think that's what a lot of people think with like mental health is like there's this rhetoric of like, oh, go to therapy so you can be like quote unquote fixed or whatever. And that's like such a like problematic mentality. So like at least that's how I saw it with the father. It's just like not like you need help, but you need to be like fixed or whatever. Thanks for bringing that up. Absolutely. I wanted to bring up when Claire is in the bathroom and she's having her miscarriage. And uh, she's asking Fleabag to get her like a pad or something because Fleabag thinks it's her period. And then Fleabag opens the door and Claire says, just get your hands off my miscarriage. It's mine. I thought that was fascinating because I understand on some level, Claire, again, is maybe jealous of Fleabag for being like the mom, all the stuff we talked about earlier. But I still think it was a particularly cruel thing to say, like in that moment, like maybe she's still thinking about the whole Martin coming on to Fleabag thing. I don't know what prompted her to say that, but I just, you see it in Fleabag's face, just like, really? Like, you still think I'm some awful person in this moment? Like, I thought that was so sad that she felt the need to 
say that in a way. But then it's also funny because then Fleabag sort of has to actually take on the miscarriage as her own. <laughs> and so Claire sort of brought it on herself in a way. I think it's like like when you're hurting, like it's just like so easy to like hurt other people. I think that was like Claire's like whole response that she was hurting because she's having like this mis- miscarriage. It's a very like traumatic experience. It hurts physically and emotionally, I'm sure. But like, I think her reaction in that case, because of all like the hurt she was feeling in that moment, like she just kind of lashed out at Fleabag because it was just like, she was right there. <laughs> and it was like the easier option. I also feel like this is maybe like Claire after like years and years of kind of maybe Fleabag's issues being more prominently brought to attention in the family, like her maybe getting a little bit more of like the attention. And so I think like there is a little bit of the jealousy there because maybe she wants, even though she isn't the kind of person who might do some of the things that Fleabag might do, I think she still wants like the attention or, or just like validation or even like acknowledgement of her existence kind of like, it seems like, she kind of is just like there and nobody really like, like they don't even know what her job is. Like they don't actually really know her. And so I feel like she's just been like massively ignored in a way like you're functional enough. We're not going to like pay that much attention to you. And so I think in this instance, she's like, I am actually like going through something right now and it needs to be like mine and like, don't co-opt it kind of in a way where like, like don't make this about you kind of, even though ironically it happens in a different way in a second, but I really think it's just like her moment to like process it and be like, I need to just focus on myself. Like, I don't want to like focus on your issues, maybe just me. Cause as a sister, I think she is very much like, she almost, I feel like feels like she has to be a mother in a way too, to her. Like it feels like, and I think this is common in families where if you have like someone who maybe like relies on someone or needs more help than other people. Like it's obviously a nice thing to help them, but sometimes like boundaries are crossed or like chronically it can be exhausting as well. And it's hard for individual people to like have that balance. I think where like you're caring for somebody, but sometimes it's prioritized over your own care. And so I think that was just like years of built up almost anger at her not having her own needs met by herself and taking it out kind of on flea bag because she does care about her, but maybe uh, she doesn't really have like the best boundaries set up or she hasn't been able to communicate how she feels about this to flea bag. So I feel like it was just this moment of this is something that's traumatic. It's all happening now. And I'm just going to get it out like that and just say it. Before wrapping up, I do want to talk about the fox and what you think the meaning of the fox is. So uh, in episode three of season two, the priest says that they've been after him for years. <laughs> and so we see it in that, well, we actually don't see it, the fox itself in that scene, but presumably it appears. And then we do see it at the very end of episode six, which is the end of the show. Um, so what do you make out of this beautiful animal? Yeah, I just, I don't get it. But it's, okay. it doesn't mean I don't like it, though. I thought it was still an interesting, like, kind of storyline. Especially, I think, at the very last episode when, like, she says goodbye to the priest. And then, like, then a fox walks in front of her. And she's like, oh, he went that way. Like, that was really funny. <laughs> but yeah, personally, I have, I have no idea. <laughs> That's fine. No, that's cool. Like I said, today's like, all I have is questions. <laughs> I don't have that many answers. But I think it's a perfect show for that. It's just like helps you, just makes you like think. And it doesn't have to be some like, like again, it doesn't have to be Shakespeare. It doesn't have to be like so complicated to make you reflect on it, which is fun. But what do you think, Jackie? 
like it could be a metaphor for him kind of like finding himself a little bit as well, like feeling like there's a part of himself that he is has ignored for a while, or maybe he's like conflicted in some ways. And so I think the visual representation of like this fox might like get me, but maybe it's not like necessarily a bad thing either, right? Like but it's just like maybe a recurring thing that's on his mind that he feels like he can't like he's restricted or like can't explore that side of himself kind of. So I think at the end a little bit, it's kind of just like this happened and like this was like explored a little bit and like just moving on now kind of thing. But like, I don't know. I didn't think about it during the show. I was just kind of like, Oh, that's kind of funny. Like, (laughs) I just like, once again, looked up online, apparently in some, like in Christianity, Foxes kind of have like a negative connotation, but I'd have to research that more. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that to me, it's maybe a symbol of his faith, right? That he's been, he sees these foxes and he finally accepts that his path in life is to go into the, what's it called? The church. <laughs> and so maybe also, you know, bringing up the very last scene of the show, uh, which we'll touch on in a sec, but maybe it's again, just confirmation, like, you know, he he decided not to be with Fleabag romantically or anything. So this fox appears and be like, yep, I'm pushing you on back towards the path of faith. You know, you got to stick on that path. Of course, I, I'd love to just briefly touch on the very last scene at the bus stop. It's, I think, one of the most talked about or, you know, heavily circulated scenes uh, on social media, which is that Fleabag tells the priest that she loves him and he says, it'll pass. And I think just that those two words, right, are extremely iconic for this show. It's uh, you say that to anyone and they'll be like, "Mm," you know, (laughs) you you found your people if they know what you're talking about. Yeah, I'd love to know what emotions you felt while watching that scene, because I think it is a very emotional scene. I felt like resignation, I guess. Like, okay, well, because I guess I was just like, oh, my God, will they or won't they the whole time? (laughs) And at this point, it's like clear, like he's choosing God over her. So I thought, okay, like you know acceptance I guess is what I'm thinking of and like acceptance and resignation and like also the fact that he's like he's right like it will pass like I guess the whole point of life is that like there's so many people you'll come to like love or fall out of loving and whatnot like that's just like such a human experience to like love someone who doesn't love you back or maybe loves you back but for whatever reason you're not able to be together and but those feelings like pass and you move on so he could have said something really like awful, but like, he's not like that, you know? And I think him saying like ill pass, like just very much embodies who he is as a character. But I think he does say like afterwards, like, I love you too before he like leaves. So like, yeah. Anyway, it's, it's kind of like a bittersweet moment. I mean, it's literally the send off the whole show, but it feels very much like it's reflecting upon Fleabag's experiences because like you could interpret this a little bit mental health wise too, I feel like, but I feel like she probably like has some abandonment issues because like, even with like death, like there's Boo and her mother, but then also like none of these partners ever really stay. There's like Harry who like comes back. And then when he finally does leave, you can tell there's like definitely a shift in like her affect and like her family, like isn't super studying her life either. So I think it's, a lot of the show is literally like about loneliness, I think. But at the same time, it highlights like different moments where you have human connection. But overall, like at the end of the day, Fleabag is kind of alone. And she's just kind of like herself a little bit and the camera. (laughs) But I feel like at the end, it kind of 
acknowledges like that there was a presence there. There was a connection there and that it's not like necessarily a bad or like a good thing. It's just like acknowledging that this happened and there were like some good moments there and the time has now come where it's like almost over and feelings are there still. But like, like Sophie was saying, I very much feel like it's like a reflection of in life, like different moments in life, like a whole timeline of a life. There's like so many different moments where you're like, where relationship aspects totally differ. You might have a strong connection with someone for like a year or two and then never talk to them again. But yet those two years were like some of the most special connections you've ever had in your life. That's like literally one of my favorite tropes and shows when it's like a relationship that's not long lasting, but still very meaningful. And so I think by like telling this story of this very meaningful, odd connection between two people who never would connect usually and just without saying much being like this happened and it was beautiful and we still care about each other and basically like I hope you have a good life type of thing very beautiful way to end the show though totally yeah I was someone that I think Sophie mentioned this too like I'm, I'm someone that really just wants people to be together you know when they get along so well or whatever and so for me it was it felt really painful to to watch that scene but and sort of echoing also what Sophie said it's that the reality is that it will pass and I think that's in a way that's what's heartbreaking is not that he reject well whatever quote unquote rejected her, it's that it's true that her feelings probably for him will diminish, especially if they never see each other again, or you know even if she thinks of him and still loves him like, but yeah I think I think it's true that that feelings do fade and that's just as heartbreaking as not getting what you want in the first place or whatever. So that for me was what like stood out about the the exchange, but I'm glad he says, I love you too. And just however he means it, I think it's another way again of him saying, I see you, I, you, you, you mean something to, Oh my God, no, am I going to cry? Okay. No. Okay. Uh, but anyways, and they both portray these characters just so absolutely so beautifully. It's such a hit for a reason. Like I was gonna ask you why you guys think it's a hit. I mean, for me, it's like, I remember talking to Jackie when we watched um, Past Lives, where I mentioned the concept of finding the universal and the specific, right? And so this is a pretty, a fairly specific character's life going through fairly specific things, I would say. But for me, why I gravitate towards it so much is you find these universal truths, these universal emotions, these universal types of relationships that are not shown as much on screen. But if you want to share anything about why you think it's a hit, I'd love to to hear that. I think it's really relatable. And obviously, like, you know, Fleabag's not like a perfect person, which is also another reason why it's relatable. I think she kind of embodies like aspects of ourselves that like, we don't always feel comfortable admitting to. I think that's why it kind of like draws people to it, because it's kind of like a way to like, validate our own feelings and emotions and reactions to certain things. Yeah, I think a lot of those like moments are kind of moments that are in loneliness or like, like you wouldn't necessarily talk to other people about. And so by her kind of like sharing that her experiences like with the audience, I think it definitely makes people feel less alone. And it's a lot of like characteristics that are really like looked down upon in society, but are really prevalent. I think like there's less and less stigma on like mental health things, but there a lot of the characteristics of like certain mental health, like diagnoses or whatever are still like very much looked down upon in a way that is not empathetic at all or like filled with understanding and like without like putting a label on anything for her, I feel like a lot of her like behaviors, like people just treat her so poorly. And it also just totally affects like how 
she acts in a way, but anyway, I think that's like very relatable in many ways. Like a lot of people like behave in the same way or cope in the same way with things or have dealt, dealt with similar things. It's like oddly relatable in some ways, but then at the end of the day, also, it's just like very well written. Watching the show, I feel like it should be like used as an example script for like TV and film writing courses in universities because I just feel like they're like literally perfect screenplays. Just so well thought about but not in a way that makes you feel like it's like forced it just feels like very natural but then it's like wow this all like ties together so well and is so intentional but anyway and very funny show very funny oh yeah the entertainment value stays very high which is yeah. i think what you're saying is that it's <laughs> to me it's another sort of genius show that i would uh yeah i just would categorize it as genius so before we end of course i need to know how would you summarize this show in under 10 seconds for people who haven't seen it before but listened all the way to the end and of course now know a lot about it but anyways yeah what would your 10 second summary be <laughs> oh man i was about to like do a joke one which just like literally makes me feel like flea bag like i was about to be like if you've ever wanted to fuck god <laughs> Then maybe this is the show for you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yes. Lonely woman, fucked up family, and a hot priest. Oh, yep. The iconic trio. Iconic trio. (laughs) Mine is sort of similar to Jackie, which is that this show depicts the only occasion when you're happy for a priest to have sex. (laughs) Yes. Thank you both so, so much for joining me today. And thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Yes. <laughs> Lots of fun. <laughs> Sophie, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, reading with Soph is my Instagram handle. I review books on it. So if you also like reading books in addition to watching shows, you can always give me a follow. Yes. Yeah, we'll link uh, we'll link your Instagram down below. Thank you both so much. <laughs> And that's the show. You can find us on Instagram, threads, Twitter, and TikTok, but preferably interact with us, not on Twitter because Elon Musk of it all. But our handle is at watchedpod, so come and find us. You can also send us an email at watchedpod at gmail.com. We have still, as of the date of recording this episode, we have not received a fan email yet. I'm eagerly awaiting that very first one. So will that be you? Let us know. Also, you can let us know by email if you'd like. If you can say watched it when someone brings up Fleabag. And please share your 10 second summary with us because I think they would be very amusing. Happy watching and see you in two weeks because next week we're taking just a little breather. So it'll give you an opportunity to catch up on all the episodes you haven't listened to yet. And we'll be back on November 28th.